0: Heavenly Father, thanks so much uh, for the way that you speak to us through your word. Lord, sometimes we come across tricky passages that um, humble us and remind us that uh, we are not people who, by our nature, long to hear you speak. Uh, We are not people who are, by our nature, patient and listening to your word. And so, Lord, we ask now that you will work in our hearts and our minds by your spirit such that we might hear your word as it is the words of the living God and that we might be changed uh, into being the people that you want us to be. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I reckon the, the internet has enriched our lives in many ways. And one of my uh, most favourite ways that it's enriched my life is a particular website called awkwardfamilyphotos.com. Um, it's kind of a celebration of everything that is weird and wonderful when someone in the 80s organises a family portrait. Uh, and one of the things I love about the website is that you can really see a family likeness. Uh, You can see the family traits as these families pose together. Um, Some families, they're into afros. See? Beautiful. And glasses. Some are into tartan. Others are into the colour pink. Um, Unfortunately, there are some poor families that can only afford one chair. Um, Others like parrots and guns. Uh, Others, snakes. This guy looks so creepy. Um, It's the moustache. that. It's not the snake, it's the moustache that really gets me. Um, It seems that quite a lot of families are into cats, cats and cats, although there's a guy with a pet duck, and then there's cats and cats and cats. Uh, Some families like to go to the beach together, as you can see. Uh, You can see the family likeness as they're hanging out, enjoying the beach, loving every moment. Uh, Enough of that. Uh, In today's passage, that's very distracting. In today's passage, we're going to meet two very different families. We're going to meet... Uh, these families, and each family has a family likeness, traits that define that family. And, and quite simply, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see Fain, Cain's family is shaped by sin. And then we're going to see the family of Seth, which was in chapter 5. And the family of Seth are a sign of hope. Uh, and these two families are here and they present us with a choice and they teach us something about God as well. Uh, They're put here next to each other inviting us to decide whether we are going to be uh, part of Cain's family of sin or whether we're going to see uh, the hope and follow the hope that can be found in Seth's family line. Which way will we go? Uh, Now Cain's family uh, at the end of chapter 4 there, it's actually the conclusion of a story that started back in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, the story began with Adam and Eve, they were placed in the garden, and while they're in the garden, they rejected God and his word, and since then, we've kind of watched in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 as, as, as things have just spiraled out of control, as, um, uh, and, 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 and this story, it kind of finishes with this, episode, this, it finishes with this genealogy of Cain's family. And, and those who follow in Cain's footsteps, they're on the same track as their ancestors, Adam and Eve. They're walking the same path as their grandfather, Cain. It's this family that's shaped by sin. It'd be great if you can have the Bible open to uh, Genesis chapter 4 and, and looking on page 4 there, and, and just have a quick scan through verses 17 to 24. Have a quick look through there and tell me how many times you can see God's name mentioned in those verses. Can anyone see God's name mentioned at all in Cain's family? Aaron says zero, none, zilch, no mention of God at all. Uh, and if you're wondering, you know, kind of Cain's family is defined by sin. If you're wondering what a good definition of sin is, then that's, this is a pretty good introduction. This is a picture of a family that is getting on with life. They're enjoying the things of this world, but they're doing it without any reference, without any thanks to the God who made it all. Uh, and that's what's going on here. Life for Cain's family is settled and creative. Uh, verse 17 tells us that Cain, he built a city and he kind of named it in, in honor of his son. So these, these Cain's family, they're kind of city slickers now. They're proud of their children. Uh, and then we read on and they're cultured. They play instruments. They're poets. They're smart too. They're innovative stockmen. They're brilliant metal workers. Uh, but that's all in Cain's family here. But there is no mention of God. None. For all their development, for all their progress, for all their innovation, they don't know God and they don't worship God. I was thinking about this this afternoon. Uh, Kane's family is actually—they would fit right in in Wellington. Uh, They're on the cutting edge of 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 the technology, and here we are with our kind of emerging IT industry zeros from Wellington. How amazing is that? How proud are we? you know, the, the, the arts they're into, the, the, these guys are inventing new types of music. Uh, here we're so proud of our artistic scene, the culture, the cuisine, the craft beer capital. And this is the place where all the cool kids come to hang out uh, and, to, and, and to, to kind of live the good life. Kane's family would fit right in here in Wellington. But the other thing about Wellington is that Wellington is the, you know, said to be the most godless city in New Zealand. The highest number of atheists, people who don't believe in a God, live here in Wellington. They say that Wellington has the lowest number of Christians anywhere in New Zealand. And probably it uh, you know, probably got the lowest proportion of Christians of, of any city in the English-speaking world. And so it sounds like Cain and his family would fit in well here in Wellington. You see, Cain and his family, despite their advancement, despite their progress, despite their enlightenment, they are angry. They are angry, they are wrapped up in sin. Look at what Lamech says to his wives there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Verse 23, he says, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. Yes, there's beauty, there's ingenuity, there's civilization, but there's a harshness here. There's a hatred, there's murder, there's anger. This is life lived without reference to God. This is life where rebellion goes unfaced, unchecked, unaddressed, where the creativity and innovation is there, but behind it all is sin. It's a world without God. You see, on one level, it's possible to be so positive about humanity and about civilization and about progress. Who doesn't want great music? Who doesn't want to, to have the cutting edge of technology? Who doesn't want the easy life of convenience? But another level, um, this here is is so realistic about life without God. You know, this this picture of Cain's family here it is it's depressing and it's dangerous. I mean, we can find ourselves falling into the trap of thinking like Cain's family do, thinking that we're so clever, that we've got it all worked out, that we have no need for God. Uh, in, in, in the 1930s, a bunch of scientists and philosophers, they got together and they were so impressed with humanity's progress and advancement and science that they declared that it was time to abandon religion. And, and the, what they did is they penned a thing called the, the Humanist Manifesto. It was, it, was, it was setting out a way of living in the world without God. We don't need him anymore. So how do we live in the world without God? And this is the conclusion. We consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate. We don't need God anymore. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realisation of the world of his dreams. That he has within himself the power for its achievement. essentially they're declaring, we have no need for God we're smart enough to fix the world, to enjoy the world, to make a better world all by ourselves. This could be the manifesto for Cain's family. A life of progress, a life of development, a life of improvement and innovation without reference to God. But do you know what came of the first Humanist Manifesto? So the date of it, 1933. Um, what happened not too long after 1933? 1933. World War II came along and that forced them to rewrite their manifesto and, and to explain what was wrong with the humanist manifesto. I'll, I'll read the second humanist manifesto that came out in 1973 where they reflect on what was wrong with their first manifesto. This is what they say. Events since the first manifesto make it clear that the earliest statement seems far too optimistic. They were too optimistic about what they could achieve without God so Nazism has shown the depths of brutality of which humanity is capable. And science has sometimes brought evil as well as good. Rejecting God, progress and innovation, it didn't bring an end to evil. It, it simply increased evil's capacity as, uh, as, as our science and progress increased. Evil just snowballed. And this is what we see here in Cain's family, a family shaped by sin. And this is what we see in the world around us a world that moves forward without reference to God. And and we see snowballing, ever-increasing evil and anger and violence and hostility towards God and His Word. I think there's a warning for us here that... uh, The warning, I think, for us here is that all all that glitters is not gold. And we live in a world that um, idolises the sophisticated and the stylish and the smart and the shiny. Our, 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 Our social media feeds are full of things and people and places that we're told that we want and that we need to have. And and, and we can be kind of duped into thinking that by having those things, by achieving those things, by experiencing those things, then that will solve our problems. But Cain's family tells us that advancement and sophistication and progress without reference to God, it is still shaped by sin. It's driven by rebellion against the Holy God, the God who made them. And so we need to not buy into that illusion, that progress, and that the progress of civilization, that the ingenuity of human, humanity is going to solve our problems. And we, we keep getting told that it's just a matter of education. If we can just educate everyone properly, or if we just develop the right technology, or if we can just kind of somehow muster all the kind of political willpower, we'll get on top of the world's problems. I think we should be working at that, but no matter how advanced we get... No matter what solutions we devise, our number one problem will remain if we don't address sin. You see, the root problem that lies here between the brokenness of Cain's family, that relies behind the brokenness and inequality that we, we all still experience in our world, the root problem is sin. It's our rebellion against God. It's our rejection of our Creator. We've broken His good world and we've, we've pushed Him and His word out of the picture And it's only when we deal with that problem kind of personally and collectively, it's only when we deal with sin can we have any hope. Which is why it's great news that the Bible doesn't end with Cain's family. It doesn't end with this family that are just defined by sin. See, there's this other family that's contrasted to Cain's family and it's the the family of Seth. And the family of Seth, they are a sign of hope for us. Uh, Now, uh, Cain and Seth were brothers, uh, if you didn't pick that up. So, you know, Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, if Cain and Abel were the pair, then Seth was the spare. He was the brother who came along to replace Abel. Um, uh, So take a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 25 with me. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 25, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, right from the beginning of Seth's family, we're um, we're kind of met with those encouraging words. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And it's kind of like a marker or a signpost that, that this family line is going to be different to Cain's. This family is going to be defined by dependence upon God, dependence upon God, calling on the name of the Lord, dependence on God that leads to hope. And it's as if this kind of there's a line drawn under the sinful family of Cain. Uh, and chapter 5, it, it kind of dials everything back like a new beginning. Uh, did you, uh, when you're listening to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, did it remind you of any other parts of the Bible? I'll read it for you again. Did it remind you of any other parts of the Bible? It says this in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. He named them... Mankind, when they were created, does that remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? No, no idea. Anyone want to take a guess? Genesis two, yeah. Genesis chapter one and chapter chapter two, yeah. Um, it's it, it's like Genesis chapter one and two all over again. It's a new beginning uh, we have at the beginning of chapter five. A, a new beginning with this new family that's that's bringing a, a new hope. Uh, this family, as it says, will, uh, you know, continues to bear the image of God, it says. Uh, now, I'll admit, you know, Genesis chapter 5, it's not exactly riveting reading, okay? Um, if you're struggling to get to sleep later tonight, you know, Genesis chapter 5, it's a good go-to, like to uh, help uh, kind of nod off. Uh, it's not exactly riveting reading. Uh, genealogies are notoriously boring. Uh, and many of us, when we read the Bible, we're tempted to skip over them, uh, and many preachers do that as well. Go, go and try and find a sermon on Genesis chapter 5. It's, they're quite hard to find. Not many people bother, bother doing the work in the text. Uh, but genealogies in the Bible, they're not just lists of names. They're not just kind of connecting points by a, a whole list of names. They're more than a family tree, more than the kind of the family tree that your nana pulls out and you look over with kind of tea and biscuits and learn all about Uncle Norman, who you never met. Um, it's not like that. See, in, encoded in this genealogy is a whole bunch of information that the author wants to teach us. Uh, and, we, and when we read it, we have got to work out what he's trying to communicate to us through this family. And, and, and the way to work that out is to notice two things. Uh, to notice two things in the genealogy. The first thing to notice is what's the pattern? What's the pattern? And in this case, the pattern runs a bit like this. I've got it up on the screen so you can see. Uh, The pattern runs like this. A lived for X years, and then he fathered B. A lived Y years after he fathered B, fathering sons and daughters. A's whole life lasted X plus Y years, and then he died. Uh, Now, some of you are kind of cold sweats. That looks like algebra. Um, (laughs) But uh, we're not... We might do a little bit more maths later, but we're not going to do much on this one. Um, so once we work out what the pattern is, we then look at uh, what it says and we, 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 we can work out two things. We can work out what keeps getting repeated, you know? So if they're going to tell you all these things about this family, uh, what are the things that they choose to repeat? What do they choose to repeat time and time again? So, you know, the first thing is they're really old, you know? That seems to be repeated over and over again. The second thing is they fathered other sons and daughters. Uh, so that you know, this family is getting on with the task of filling the earth like God commanded them to do. And the last thing that's repeated is that they died. You know? And so those are things that we can draw out information about with this family. What God wants to teach us about who these people were. Another thing we look for, so we look at what's repeated, but then we look at what breaks the, the pattern. You know, so you know, we ran through that, and if you weren't completely asleep by the time you got to Enoch, you would have seen that the pattern breaks. Uh, and and so though, where we see the pattern break, we then dive deep into that stuff to see the to find the goal, to find what's going on here, what's going on with this family. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to answer uh, or have a temp, an attempt at uh, answering one of the questions that's in your mind at the moment, which is. Um, the guys in this chapter appear to be very, very old. I, I I don't know about you. I don't know the last time I met someone who was 962 years old. That's kind of strange. I mean, Adam, Adam makes it to 930. Uh, Enoch's the baby of the family here. He gets to 365 when God takes him, kind of a mere slip of a lad. Um, what on earth is going on with these really long, these really long lifespans? So, I mean. Some people, the way they work it out is they, they do some very complicated uh, Babylonian maths that to do with kind of uh, the cycles of the planets and the moon, and uh, and they they think that it's not actually telling us how old they were, but it's trying to communicate kind of when they were born and you know what the planets were doing at the time when they were born. But I'm not sure if that's what's really going on here. Um, some people uh, they use the dog year approach. Uh, you know the idea that a dog like one human year is worth seven <laughs> dog years. Um, and so they kind of do that sort of approach here. And what they do is they go, they take the oldest guy, Methuselah, and they say, well, he was really old. And, and how old do we think someone might live? Maybe 120 years old. So we take his age and we divide that by 120. And you get to something about 12 years. So one, one year for us, it might equal 12 years in this list. Um, and then so then, you know, these people are all of a sudden starting to live more normal lifespans. But you get a real problem when you work out when these guys became fathers, because uh, it doesn't quite work so smoothly at that point. See, the oldest dad here is Methuselah, who becomes a dad at the grand old age of 15 or 16. Uh, Seth became a dad at about the age of 8 or 9. And Enoch, brace yourself, according to the kind of the dog year method, uh, he became a dad at the age of 5 and a half, uh, which is the same age as my youngest son, Finn, which doesn't bear thinking about. Um, so that method doesn't really make much sense. Uh, so what do we do with these long, long ages? Uh, another way we can approach the problem is to look at what other ancient texts say about people who lived at the same time. Um, we've got some artifacts that, we can, that people have dug up and they've, they've, they've dated them to about the same time that they think Genesis uh, was written. So we've got the Sumerian king list and the Lagash king list. And I've got a few pictures up on the screen if you want to see what they look like. Uh, they were both written about the same time as Genesis. And they were... No, I don't. Oh, well, that's right. Um, they're just columns with scratches in them. I'll show, you, I'll show you them later. Anyway, they've got these things, right? They're museums. There's one, one of them in a museum in Oxford University. So you can, you can go there and you can see these things. And what they do is they, they're writing about people who, who lived pre an ancient flood. Uh, and so uh, these, these three texts, the Bible and these two other king lists, uh, they all record a time where people lived before a great flood and all three of them record that people who lived before the great flood lived a really, really long time. Uh, they lived a really, really long time. One of them says that you know, certain kings lived to, for, for 26,000 years and then after the flood, uh, people seem to live much more normal kind of lifespans. I think it can be explained... In, I think there's two possible explanations that can come from that. Uh, the first explanation is that You know, they really did live a long time before this ancient flood, whenever that was. Uh, We don't know how, we don't know why. People will say, you know, because, you know, the genes weren't all kind of corrupted and whatever. The DNA was better or something like that. Um, We don't know how, but there's multiple sources that say, you know, that seem to indicate that people lived a really long time before this ancient flood. Uh, The second explanation, which I think is probably my preferred explanation, is that um, the people are real So they give very precise numbers to indicate that these were real people, uh, but the numbers aren't literal. And uh, what I think this uh, text and other ancient texts are saying is they're kind of using these massive lifespans to tell us that these people were real, but they lived a really long time ago. Uh, They're real, but they're ancient. They're in the distant past. Even for when, uh, uh, when Moses penned Genesis, these people were ancient for him. They were a long, long time ago. And so I think that's what's going on with the big, name, the, the big numbers. Um, and yeah, you can ask a question about that later. Um, but setting that aside, setting aside these really old dudes and coming back to the pattern, uh, something that's repeated over and over and over again is that they all die. Well, almost all of them. We heard it during the Bible reading, Adam lived and then he died, Seth lived and then he died, Enoch lived and then he died, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, they lived and then they died and Enoch lived and then he He doesn't die. We break the pattern. Uh, Take a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became become the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Uh, now, there's, there's, there's two things that, are, that that's break the pattern here. Uh, the first uh, is that it says that Enoch walked with God. Doesn't say that about anyone else in this list. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and so it's a picture of intimacy here. It's a picture of enjoyment, of delight. A man enjoying the kind of relationship with God that he was made for. And what that tells us in uh, in this in this genealogy is that there is hope for humanity. There is hope for humanity that the relationship with God that was broken by sin, that it can be restored, that after kind of the falling out of the garden between creatures and creator, after the murder of Abel, after the snowballing of sin we see in Cain's family, there is hope that relationship with God is still possible. Hope that intimacy and enjoyment and delight of God can still happen again for his creatures. And that's what Enoch is doing. He is walking with God. He is enjoying that relationship with God. And then he disappears. He is not taken by death. Uh, and that's telling us that there is hope beyond death as well. Uh, kind of the, the, the barring of the way to the tree of life, that the, the curse that they will die. Uh, there is hope that that curse may be undone. Uh, and we see this in verse 23, even if kind of the, the details are frustratingly brief, Um, kind of one minute Enoch is there walking with God and the next minute he's gone. Uh, There's only one other person in the Bible who gets this treatment and that's Elijah. And it's kind of highly unusual. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the circumstances. It's not really explained, but I think the message of this is clear. Even in this fallen world, even though death reigns, Enoch's sudden departure is, is pointing to a hope that is beyond death that God is willing to do whatever it takes to make it possible for people like you and me to enjoy a relationship with him, to enjoy a hope of life that, beyonds, that goes beyond the grave, that the curses of Genesis 3 that result in death, God is willing to do what it needs to be done to make them undone, to remove them. Those curses will not hold those who walk with God. I think that's what it's telling us here. And this provides us with hope. The hope that we can see in Seth's family. There's another thing we see, uh, which is the hope of comfort. Uh, This is the other departure we see from the pattern of this family tree. I'm not sure whether you you picked it up. Um, As we read, there's, Uh, there's two Lamechs, one in chapter 4 and one in chapter 5. They're different people. There's the nice Lamech in Seth's family rather than the nasty Lamech in Cain's family. And so the nice Lamech, he um, has a son uh, called Noah and he's born uh, in um, chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, We'll hear more about that guy Noah uh, next week. Um, But uh, it breaks the pattern of the genealogy here because uh, Lamech is the only person who speaks apart from the narrator. His uh, he's, is he's the only voice we hear in all of chapter 5. Uh, and, you know, we heard evil Lamech speak back in chapter 4. Uh, he was the only one who spoke in chapter 4. And uh, here we have, oh, sorry, apart from Eve, Eve spoke as well. Um, we have evil Lamech speak and now we have nice Lamech speak. Uh, and this is what nice Lamech says in verse 29. He, that is Lamech, named his son Noah, which sounds like comfort. And he said... He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. You see, there's a hope offered by this family and that hope is becoming clearer. There's hope of comfort. There is hope of comfort that the curse of sin will be reversed. That God is going to do something through this boy Noah to move us closer to the fulfillment of um, the promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse, verse 15 that there will be one who comes from Eve who will crush the serpent's head to rescue us, to bring us back to God. Uh, And that's a story that's going to develop further on as we go through uh, chapter 6 and 7 next week. But just for the time being, I want you to see that God is doing something through this family, through Seth's family. He's doing something uh, through this family that is defined not by sin, but by hope. Hope that relationship with God is still possible. Hope that goes beyond death. Hope that will bring comfort and a reverse to the curses of sin. That God will do what it takes for us to enjoy relationship with Him. And so what are we supposed to do after we read these two kind of ancient family trees? We read one family that's charging ahead with innovation and progress, uh, but with a reckless disregard for God. A family shaped by sin and kind of ever-increasing wickedness and violence. And then we have this other family which are there as a sign of hope. That relationship with God is possible. That comfort is available. That life beyond death is a possibility for those who walk with God. And so I think these two are here to, 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 to kind of compel us to choose. To choose hope over sin. Did you choose hope that, that, that comes from walking with God? Hope that you'll receive the comfort that he promises. Hope that you'll look forward to the life that doesn't end with death. Hope that comes from this God. Because Enoch's God and, and Lamech's God, he is our God. And he's the God who's committed to doing whatever it takes to enable people like you and me to walk with him now. And forever, to enjoy Him now and forever. That is the God that we see here. And the God that we see here, He has done what it takes. He has done what it takes through His Son Jesus. See, uh, all this hope that we see here in uh, Genesis chapter 5, it, it finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. Now, uh, there's something really cool I want you to see. Uh, flick over to Luke chapter 3. Uh, it's on page 833 and 834. Luke chapter 3. So this is Luke's gospel, Luke's biography of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has kind of just emerged from, the, from, from baptism in the River Jordan. Uh, in verse 22 at the bottom right-hand corner of uh, page 833. And as Jesus kind of comes up out of the water, uh, there's this voice from God from heaven that says, This is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And immediately following this kind of great command that, 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 that Jesus is God's loved, beloved son, we get, uh, Luke sets out Jesus' genealogy for us, and it sets out his family history. And as you scan down that list, head down towards the bottom. Verses 35 and 36 and 37. Whose names do you see? Verse 36. The son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You've heard those names before tonight, haven't you? You see, what Luke is saying is that Jesus fulfills the hope of this family. The hope that we see in Seth's family, it is, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just a man like Adam and Seth who are created in the image of God. No, the New Testament will tell us that Jesus is the one who is the exact representation of his being. The New Testament will tell us that if we have seen Jesus, if we have met Jesus, then we have come face to face with the living God. And D- Jesus doesn't just walk with God, but he is one with God. He is one with God and he opens up relationship with God uh, finally and ultimately, through dealing with our sin and our rebellion, he opens up intimacy with God that we can experience uh, here and now as God gifts us his Holy Spirit, as he speaks to us through his word. And Jesus is, is, kind of, and Jesus is the one who, who He doesn't just skip death, but he kind of charges right through death. He defeats death through his glorious resurrection, giving us the hope of life beyond death. And Jesus is the one who is our ultimate comfort. He is the one who has come to reverse the curse of sin. Who takes sin and the enemies of God and defeats them through his death on a cross and through his glorious resurrection. I hope you can see that uh, even Genesis chapter 5, it thrusts us forward to the hope that we find in Jesus. The hope that we find in Jesus and it's inviting us to join this family Not just Seth's family, family, but God's family. Join God's family through Jesus, where we can have relationship with God, where we can have comfort from God, where we can have relationship with God that extends beyond death, where we can be part of a family that is not marked by sin, but a family that is marked by hope. Hope of relationship with God, hope of comfort. Hope that extends beyond death. I'm going to finish with the words of uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. This is how we should respond to this hope. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This is the great hope we have in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray that we might not be like Cain's family, people defined by sin and rebellion, who have no regard for you and your word. But Lord, help us to live like Seth's family, who seek you, who bear your image, who walk with you, and who live and experience the hope that can be found in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.